Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the move I can hear the grass grow. One of the highlights from a new free CD four-hour collection called Once Upon a Time in the West Midlands, the Boston Sounds of Brumrock, 1966-74. Because yes, we are celebrating the West Midlands music scene from that period and obviously the move were at the heart of it. And of course... It is a Grapefruit Cherry Red compilation, which are so successful. And, of course, we've got David Wells here again. Uh, Welcome, David. Thanks, Jason. Now, before we get into the move, it's kind of worth talking more broadly about the Birmingham music scene. Because although there were some bands that had chart success in the early to mid-60s, like the Moody Blues and Spencer Davis Group, 
it took a, an extra year or two to take off, unlike Manchester or Liverpool. Is that something you'd recognise? I would say uh, so as well. Um, it's quite interesting because everybody knows the phrase drumbeat, but there aren't really many successful Birmingham beat bands. It wasn't really until 65 that you got Spencer Davis Group and uh, the Moody Blues breaking through, for instance, and that's two years after the, the kind of beat boom that saw kind of Liverpool, Manchester kind of um, stripped really of all, all the leading local groups. So in Birmingham, Wolverhampton, West Bromwich, that kind of area, those bands were able to, to work locally and build up their act really, um, move around, try different styles. And it was only really, like I say, the, the Spencer Davis Group and the Moody Blues hitting in 1965. But uh, to me, it really starts with, with the move coming together. Uh, inspired by um, by David Bowie in his, his pre-Bowie uh, days, really, as David Jones. Um, apparently he suggested to Ace Kefford and Trevor Burton that they should put together a better group than the one they were in. And they, they kind of hen-hunted the, um, the leading players on the, uh, the local drumbeat scene. So, yeah, to me, it starts with a move. Um, although, obviously, other people might disagree, but... Uh, yeah, um, I, I can hear the grass grow. Another classic sort of three-minute um, psychedelic pop song. Absolutely, and the, the sleeve notes for the Brung Rock compilation are very extensive, as you'd expect from a collection of this kind. And there's a little story about exploring the possible origins of the name of that track. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of um, thoughts really about where it came from. I can hear the grass grow. One is that it, it was probably taken from a, an American writer called Thomas Bullfinch, who who, who had a, a a novel that included the line "So cute is his ear that no sound escapes him, for he can even hear the grass grow." And obviously, Roy Wood was a big reader. But um, move photographer Robert Davison suggests that he uh, he was working below the Naturist magazine Health and Efficiency, and somebody had sent a letter into him saying, uh, or to the magazine saying, I listen to pop music on the radio because where I live it's so quiet I can hear the grass grow, mm. and uh, allegedly he said to Roy Wood that would make a great song title, and he went off and wrote the song. That sounds a bit off pat to me, but um, he was there and I wasn't, so who knows. <laughs> It is really a great collection of um, all the bands you'd expect and it's really interesting to see the offshoots from the bands and, and, and people going solo and then joining forces. And Yep, this is one of the appeals of the set, that it, it's such an incestuous scene. You get so many links between bands and time and time again when we're putting it together, we were saying, oh, that's... Um, that band includes a couple of guys who were later in, et cetera, et cetera, and, and it almost interrelates. It is like an old-fashioned Pete Frame family tree, uh, but with music attached, fortunately. So I think the next song we're playing, Denny Lane, uh, Say so You Don't Mind, he just come out of the, the, uh, the Moody Blues, uh, and he was working with um, Denny Cordell, who, of course, also um, looked up, uh, was also um, recording The Move at the same time. So there's all these kind of little links, and obviously Denny Lane went on to be in Bulls alongside um, Steve Givens and Trevor Burton. Um, so yeah, it's all linked up, and um, that is one of the appeals, really, that you can actually tell a story um, through maybe a couple of dozen people almost. Denny Lane obviously um, left the Moody Blues, and then the Moody Blues evolved and became the, the Moody Blues that, that, that we know now, but... Um, those few Denny Lane singles from from that period, uh, it's kind of unfulfilled promise, really, because um, 
great songwriting and a, a great concept in t- years before Rio in terms of that electric uh, and, yeah, and you, approach. You do wonder if the fact that Danny Lane was in Birmingham and he came up with the electric string band, which was the title of his, his um, kind of uh, band at that point, using strings on pop songs, you do wonder if, if you know, it was Roy Wood or, or Jeff Lynne who, who thought, well, we can take that a little bit further. Um, I think Danny Lane was probably a bit of an indisciplined talent, really. So he did do two or three singles, and then he went off to Spain for a while, I think, and Canary Islands before he, he came back two or three years later. So at the, what should have been the height of his career, he wasn't even around. And then uh, Roy Wood and Jeff Lane, a few years later, took up the mantle, really. Yeah, like I say, you do wonder at what juncture somebody said that's a good idea, maybe not in Denny's hands, but... Uh, um, yeah, that that, uh, that idea of sort of quasi-classical arrangements welded to, to three or four or five-minute pop songs. Uh, and obviously, that's what eventually Jeff Lynne was successful with. Yeah, and in a, a bit more of a progressive sound, that's something that the, the Moody Blues branched into ultimately as well. Everybody seemed to make money out of it, apart from Denny Lane. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we we do have um, we do have the um, the uh, original Moody Blues on here as well. Maybe I should mention in passing that um, we've got a track with Denny on lead vocals that was recorded in about September '66, just before he left. So we've covered that as well as the um, as well as the Denny Lane solo stuff. The subsequent Moody uh, Moody Blues lineup, obviously Justin Hayward was involved, who uh, wasn't from Birmingham, and that was one of the the things of this set. At what point is a band no longer from Birmingham mm. or, or the surrounding areas? I should say that because we've already spoken to somebody who comes from Wolverhampton who, who didn't want us to use the term Brum Rock because um, Wolverhampton people didn't like it. So, uh, and then we had somebody complain that we'd use the term West Midlands when that wasn't a local authority until 1974. Uh, and as we said, well, it was still a place before then. It was a place where music was made. So um, impossible to keep everybody happy, of course. We tried to do our best, yeah. Let me up this time 
that a doormat sees better times That's bad It's a sign to get back And think up some better lines I've been doing some growing And I'm scared of you going So they don't mind You don't mind Let me up this time So earlier we were talking about the way that um, offshoots of bands and and, uh, groups metamorphosizing, etc. Another case in point here where we have Traffic, No Face, No Name, No Number from the uh, Mr. Fancy album. That seemed to be a a bit of a joining forces of Stevie Winwood, who'd left Spencer Davis Group, and um, is it the Helians? Uh, Yes, um, the Helians had both Dave Mason and Jim Capaldi in them, although Mason was then kind of elbowed out a little bit and Capaldi was with Deep Feeling. Again, another band that we've got um, who also included um, Gordon Jackson, who went on to a solo career. Traffic also included Chris Wood, who'd been in Locomotive, who we'll hear a bit later on. So yeah, it was a coming together of, of, of musicians who played at the Elbow Room Club on, on Aston High Street. And even then, you can say, well, they subsequently went off to, to Berkshire to, to get it together in the country, as, as the phrase had it. So it was only when they left Birmingham that they started to make music. But yeah, obviously one of the key bands of that era. And this is one of my favourites, No Face, No Name, No Number. Um, doesn't get as much um, attention because it's more kind of like a stoned sort of Mellotron-based ballad, really, rather than sort of really over-the-top psychedelia like Hole in My Shoe or uh, Paper Sun. But, yeah, great ballad. There were some interesting choices in the 60s for singles, and this potentially was one of those ones that, although it was a minor hit, it was potentially just a little bit sort of subtle. I, I think so, but also it came out as a single two months after the album. And I think in those days, it, people kind of looked down on their noses at singles that came from, from albums that were already out. Often bands would record stuff so uh, completely separately from, from, from albums purely as singles. So I think that probably affected it as well that um, uh, Mr. Fantasy, the album Mr. Fantasy sold really well. And at that point, putting out another single. Um, uh, so I think it made number 40, which was nothing really. So, so yeah, it was it was a case of uh, at that point. I think it, it wasn't um, it wasn't kind of so much, so acceptable as it became like ten years later to have material out as a single that had already appeared on an album. I remember Paul McCartney talking in the late seventies, saying that by that point it was a good thing to release singles from albums because the d- DJ on the radio was likely to say, "And this is from the album," so it gave it additional publicity. Yeah. But yeah, that wasn't the case in late '67, early '68. I'm looking for a girl who has no face She has no name Or number And so I search within
Now we have the locomotive, Mr. Armageddon, another single here. And um, that was a group that were notable for having uh, Jim Simpson in the ranks. And he he seemed to be a pivotal figure on on the uh, scene in in the West Midlands. Uh, That's right, yes. Jim Simpson had, uh, he was a photographer uh, for the local uh, music paper as well. And yeah, again, as I said earlier, Chris Wood was in the locomotive as well. But it was only really when uh, Norman Haynes came along in the late 66, early 67, and he kind of took over the uh, the band, really. Jim left, Jim Simpson left by that point to concentrate on management and promotion, and he had the Big Bear Company. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Norman, who sadly died a few months ago, I believe, um, he was the, the pivotal figure. Uh, they had a kind of a scar song, Rudy's in Love, which was a, a minor hit. Uh, and then the follow-up is, is Mr. Armageddon, which, as people have said, it sounds like the work of a completely different band. It certainly does. I mean, it's a great track, but you just wouldn't expect it from the previous recording. No. Well, normally when you have a, a hit, you follow it with something in the same vein, don't you? But um, no, that, that must have confused a lot of people at the time. 
Uh, and I think also the BBC were were concerned about the lyrics. Um, the initial acetate version has, has got a line about um, it's not your bloody stupid wife, and they insisted on the change to your idiotic wife uh, before they would play it. So, um, as I mentioned in the sleeve notes, the BBC seemed to be okay with misogyny, but <laughs> Radio One listeners weren't allowed to hear the word bloody. Different times. Uh, Gosh. Absolutely strange, but uh, there we go. So then uh, Norman Haynes branched out and, and, for, and formed the uh, Norman Haynes Band? That's right, yes. He, he then put together the Norman Haynes Band and they they revisited the song on, on their album, Den of Iniquity, which is one of the sort of Biggest rarities, really, of the of the early seventies progressive rock scene.
So now we have here a former member of the move, Ace Kefford, Ace Kefford Stan, daughter of the son. So Ace Kefford, often known these days for this uh, version of For Your Love, but um, there's there's quite a lot of unreleased material that's uh, definitely worth a listen. Yeah, he left. He left the band. Uh, he left the move. Um, obviously, I mean, by his own admission, he had some severe sort of mental health problems, but uh, he was still interested in making music. I'm not quite sure whether he, he jumped or he was pushed, but um, he, he was sent down to London to record some demos for a potential solo album paired with Tony Visconti, who'd been working with, um, well, he actually just, just come over from America uh, to work with Denny Cordell. Cozy Powell, the drummer, just just left the, a band called Young Blood, who was signed to Pi, and um, yeah, so they they worked on Daughter of the Sun, recorded in, in late '68, and it, it's best known really because of the Sharon Tandy version. But uh, this didn't come out at the time, and I think it's one of the strongest things he did in '68. The Ace Kefford stand just didn't didn't last much longer, did? No, they became Big Bertha um, after. Kind of Ace, who still wasn't really well enough to, to to lead a band, kind of stepped down a little bit or stepped aside, and um, they recruited. Um, well, it was the guy from Tintern Abbey, David McTavish, um, who uh, wrote both sides of their German only single uh, as Big Bertha. Although they they did record for Atlantic, I think, as Big Bertha featuring Ace Kefford, I think. Uh, something along that line it's a bit messy it also involved uh, the brothers Dave and Denny Ball who who are kind of all over the album really um, involvement with bands like uh, Bedlam as well so yeah yeah, Daughter of the Sun um, a really strong version but uh, didn't even come out at the time didn't come out for another for, uh, 40 odd years or so <laughs>
next track is the Montana's Roundabout, and for me, this is the perfect example of a band that released a lot of material and quite a few singles in the 60s, and when they were good, they were very, very good. There's just not yeah. quite the consistency no, of sound. I, I would say they kind of lacked direction. They were basically a harmony band, but they would record in different veins. There's a Dylanish sort of protest song, there's there's some fuzz guitar stuff, there's there's sort of deep harmony stuff, there's almost middle of the road stuff as well. Uh, like You've Got to Be Loved, which was um produced by Tony Hatch. Uh but yeah, I think Roundabout is is possibly their strongest single. And it was the last one they made before uh, Terry Rowley and uh, Johnny Jones left to form Trapeze. Again, we'll we'll talk about them in a few minutes. They must have had quite a following, a live following. Or... I think they did. I think there were quite a lot of Birmingham, sort of Wolverhampton bands. I mean, uh, Montana's were from Wolverhampton. There's quite a lot of the bands from that area who kind of did the kind of um, a music plus comedy act locally seems weird now to think of that but at the time in that area it seemed to be very popular and i think the montanas did carry on for a long while in fact johnny jones was still working as the montanas throughout the 70s after he'd, he'd kind of uh got hold of a canic group called called male who were also on this uh also on this compilation with a roy wood song that was produced by rick price who they knew from sight and sound. So as I said earlier, Mm. all these bands are so interconnected. ground couldn't care less about me wind in her hair she's everywhere she's just a traveling fair
Now we have World of Oz like a tear. This was uh, a group that originally sort of were uh, around um, Chris Evans, who was known at the time as Christopher Robin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, talking about laying your cards on the table. Um, so, yes, um, Chris, Christopher Evans adopted the name Christopher Robin, and, and World of Oz were kind of almost a concept-type band of, of like... Um, sort of overgrown flower children really doing the things like the muffin man like a tear is probably their most psychedelic single i would say but um all their stuff is good and again they they had deep connections to that to that scene um uh the drummer david ray and bassist tony clarkson um had, had all played locally clarkson had been in the way the way of life and then wages of sin way, way of life obviously was band with John Bonham and, and Robert Plant involved as well. So yeah, they had a, pe- a local pedigree, didn't mean much in the wider world, but uh, yeah, they were picked up by Duram. I think Jonathan King wrote the sleeve notes to their album, and obviously King was a big sort of a pop pundit at that time, but they just, again, they didn't sell records. And virtually all of their material is definitely worth a listen. It's, it's just a, some material that's very, very what some people have described now as sort of bubblegum. And others like, like this song, which is a, a bit more of that low key psychedelia sound. I, I wonder if maybe it was just the fact that it was maybe a bit late. I think this, um, this song was released as a B-side in 69. That's right, it's early 69. Well, they didn't form until January 68. So, again, to me, you can follow them alongside bands like the Idol Race and even stuff that Mark Wirtz was doing at the time, Teenage Opera, his involvement with Tomorrow. It was that kind of toy town psychedelic pop sound, really, which some people don't like. I love it, but I, I, I see that it's a bit of an acquired taste. <laughs> well, something like The Muffin Man, you'll either love that or you'll hate it. There's no middle ground. Um, like a two, as I said earlier, is a more psychedelic offering. And um, yeah, I mean, with, with this compilation, we tried to show how how the music scene evolved throughout the 60s, late 60s, into the early 70s. And Birmingham, Wolverhampton, um, that kind of area was like the birthplace of heavy metal in a way, as we shall see later on. So, so like a tear probably has more kind of resonance with how how the scene progressed in the late 60s. I would say.
Next we have uh, Jardine and Masochists of Strangulation. Again, this is another unreleased track at the time, and this was uh, a group that was... Um, was it Keith Law who was involved with this band? It was the late Keith Law, yes, that's right. He um, he also wrote songs for Velvet Fog, who were also on this compilation. In fact, one of the songs... Uh, the song that we've used by Velvet Fog is... Uh, one of Keith's songs, um, Yellow Cave Woman, and I, I do like the story about how he came to write it. He took this um, this girl home who was an artist, and his mother was horrified about it. And after she left, um, his mother said to him, she looks like she should be living in a cave. <laughs> so that's how he came to write Yellow Cave Woman, but he gave that to um, gave that to Velvet Fog, and instead he carried on with his own band, Initially, uh, Love and Understanding, who were based in Walsall, and then he formed Paint, who included um, uh, lead singer was Mickey Cox, who actually came into the Band of Joy when Robert Plant walked out in the summer of 67, before Plant then formed another band called the Band of Joy. So, uh, yeah, as I said, it all links together. This is this is just a great track. When I mean, I was initially attracted to it because of the title, I suppose, Masochist of Strangulation. You think, what are they going to do with a title like that? But it's a very kind of American West Coast type feel. You can imagine it coming out of um, one of the, I don't know, one of the Los Angeles recording studios in the late 60s. But it was actually made in Carnaby Street. Uh, I was going to ask you about that because it's, I was wondering where some of this, um, some of the demos were, were recorded on, on this and where bands played. So this was actually Carnaby Street because I know that, was it Hollick and Taylor was the uh, the popular yeah, Holly can tell you there was Domino in uh, in Wolverhampton as well. Um, yeah, there, there were three or four local studios. I think one of the reasons why why that area is of interest really in the late sixties is because they had local facilities. There was the Edgebaston um, BBC studios as well that a lot of the bands recorded in. They had other local demo studios, as I've said, um, but they were also because of like. Um, the the um, sort of uh, the nascent um, uh, motorway network in this country. You only had the M1 really, and so it was easy for bands from Birmingham, Wolverhampton, to to get down to London very quickly. 
and kind of talked with record company executives and do shows for for Radio One, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's the difference between them and say Liverpool or Manchester, where it was too far away and the bands basically had to go and base themselves in in London. Birmingham bands were close enough to London to to get down, but far enough away to have their own scene. So so yeah, a lot some of these demos they were recorded locally, but equally it was no stretch really for the bands to go down to London and record quickly and play locally, uh, play um, play the um, the London clubs in the evening. This was the day before the sort of motorways and so. The, the... There was only the M1 in those days. That was all there was. So, like I say, that that um, that was perfect for bands from that area. If you were in Newcastle, for instance, you know how we it's. <laughs> You, did, you didn't have that that uh, um, potential down there. Same, like I say, with Liverpool, uh, and I think that was why by '66, '67, you don't really have a Liverpool scene anymore because everybody of any consequence had kind of migrated down south. You didn't need to do that in in the West Midlands.
So now we have a band who were then known as the Climax Chicago Blues Band, like Uncle Charlie, a single from 1969. This is a group that were formed together from a few bands. Yes, yeah, they were put together in Stafford. Um, came from two bands, a blues group called Mason Dixon Line, and then there's a soul outfit called The Gospel Truth. Um, so they settled down and signed to Pie in summer 68, and they cut a, a demo album at Abbey Road. But after that, they put out this kind of standalone single, Like Uncle Charlie, which was just um, based around the final words of, of Alfred Hitchcock classic, Shadow of a Doubt, where the little girl who's been visited by her uncle says the world just seems to go crazy every now and then, like Uncle Charlie, after she discovers he was a murderer. Um, and that, that seemed to be the uh, the, um, the basis for Like Uncle Charlie, which when you listen to it, you think, that's a great song, but that's not a single at all. That, that's not commercial. I mean, how are they? But, but they did do a second album, um, Plays On, which came out a month or two later, and, and that wasn't on there. So um, maybe maybe their A&R man had a quiet word with them. <laughs> but it's a great uh, great song. And then the the band continued and evolved and yeah. into the 70s. Uh, they became like a blues institution. They're obviously, they're a big hit in this country. We couldn't get it right. And they changed their name regularly. Um, they also did that great single Mole, uh, Mole on the Dole as well uh, for Harvest, I think, about 71, 72. So, yeah, an interesting band, um, but it was only really couldn't get it right that meant anything in this country. I think they had a minor American hit as well, um, one or two hits anywhere in America. Their 60s work seems to have been largely forgotten, but it is interesting. Inside my head, my mind 
So now we have Galliard and a modern day fairy tale here. This was a group that came out of the Craig, and was, is that the Craig of um, um, I Must Be Mad? That's right, yeah. In fact, we start this uh, compilation with I Must Be Mad. Um, didn't make the cut tonight, I'm afraid, but um, yeah, so, so they collapsed um, after disagreements with their producer, Larry Page. Jeff Brown, the the leader and main songwriter, went off to work for British Leyland, and then they uh, they put together uh, he, he and Richard Pennell, who'd um, been in the Craig as well, and later became ELO's um, sound engineer. So yeah, they put together Galliard, and were signed by Phil Wayman to to Decca's new underground label, DM Nova. Uh, a couple of albums. The first album, Strange Pleasures, is really good, and. A modern day fairy tale is kind of how you'd expect psychedelia to go at the beginning of the the prog rock era. Really, um, it's still got a foot in both camps. Really, what were the the band doing sort of after the uh, split? Do you know? Oh, well, I think um, Jeff Brown went on to work in computers. Um, I can't remember offhand, but um, he became quite prominent, I think, in the computer world. As I say, Richard Pennell went on to 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 work with the Electric Light Orchestra again. That that Birmingham connection. But uh, no, I I don't know really of any um, any major subsequent releases. Really, both of the main the main members had been academically inspired, if you like. Mm. So I think the Craig as well. I mean, um, obviously. He didn't feature in Galliard, but the Craig featured uh, Carl Palmer as their drummer. Um, obviously, went on to uh, to make a big name for himself. Uh, but uh, yeah, as as, a, as for Galliard, I, I think it's the standard story of a band who who made a couple of albums in the early seventies that are now collectible but meant nothing at the time. Touch the ground, it didn't ever stop at all. Walked along the road to who knows where it was, but all I know, we didn't really care. We stood beneath the waterfall and rode upon a horse that was the color of the sky. Eyes were diamonds, then we gold. The earth was fire, but all I know, we didn't wonder why. We didn't wonder why. Didn't wonder why. Oh 
Trapeze and Suicide from their self-titled album from 1970. Now this is a very interesting um, album and a great sounding album and um, first of all worth mentioning that the members of that group and these were Montana members that um, briefly left the, the group. Yeah, kind of a Wolverhampton supergroup for a while, if you like. Um, two Montana's members, Johnny Jones and Terry Rowley, teamed up with three members of Finders Keepers, another local band. Uh, and they were Glenn Hughes on bass and vocals, Mel Galley on guitar and Dave Hammond on drums. So the idea really was that Trapeze would, would have those intricate harmonies that uh, both those um, bands have been noted for, but also kind of heavier late 60s approach. Um, they were signed to um, uh, the Moody Blues label Threshold and they were produced by John Lodge. Yet again, another um, kind of um, incestuous Birmingham connection. And Trapeze, the, the debut album Trapeze, is is a really strong album. Ooh. But, but uh, Johnny Jones and Terry Rowley went back to Montana's within weeks of it coming out. Uh, and the rest of Trapeze continued as a three-piece, as a power trio. And on Suicide, you can kind of hear like they, they want to cut loose almost. Uh, obviously, Glenn Hughes then went on to join Deep Purple.
group always associated with the West Midlands Slade and um, interesting paid for the group here this is a one way hotel one of the highlights from their uh, debut LP Plate Loud and I'd say that that album is kind of like a, a bit of a curate's egg of of stuff but this this song shows that promise for the band I, I think it's the band looking for a potential direction um, trying different things really but uh, One Way Hotel I think is a really strong song but it was at a time when they had that skinhead image which lasted about five minutes or whatever but um, mm. that's what featured on the front cover and uh, apparently that was Chaz Chandler's idea um, but it didn't really suit the music especially I mean skinheads were listening to, to ska and reggae um, so I, I think it might have um, affected their ability to to get bookings as well. If you see a band with a skinhead image in the late 60s, early 70s, you're going to think twice about booking them. Um, so they quickly ditched that. But um, One Way Hotel is about being on the road and um, checking into your latest kind of bed and breakfast hotel uh, and finding it a bit grim, to say the least. Uh, but the band obviously thought highly of it because it was included on, on the Sladest collection, which was kind of like an early Greatest Hits compilation. Sign with a pen on the line I was done for 
we've mentioned Roy Wood, and we have Wizard Ballpark Instant, one of the run of uh, fine singles that, that Roy Wood was involved in the early 70s. And um, this was a period when um, Roy, who had formed ELO, recorded an album. Everything was as seemed on the surface to be going swimmingly, and then he kind of branches into a bit more of a rock and roll sort of theme. Yes, um, he he walked out on um, ELO during sessions for their second album, which was only mid seventy two. He taken a couple of the players with him, um, and then he did um, taken as well several members of a band called Mongrel, including Rick Price, um, who'd been in the move. Yeah, they they made some great singles. The albums to me are a little bit messy, but if you condensed Roy, if you kept him to three minute singles, he was fantastic. And uh, Ballpark Internet has always been overshadowed by things like See My Baby Jive, which was number one. And of course, I wish it could be Christmas every day, which I'm sure we'd all happily never hear again. Uh, <laughs> but so so I thought, yeah, Ballpark Internet is their first single. In fact, it came out in, in late 72. And as you mentioned about the rock and roll thing, they actually made their live debut at the London Rock and Roll Show at Wembley Stadium in August. So yeah, that that was a time when when there was a kind of back to basics kind of movement. I think Bill Haley was touring over here. Chuck Berry was having hits, and yeah, there, there is that um, that kind of rock and roll element to their stuff. But it's also kind of great songwriting as well. And Ballpark Incident is a really underrated song. But there seemed to be sort of a Phil Spector sort of production on top as well. Yes, well, we uh, apart from Ballpark Incident, we've also included Dear Elaine, uh, a Roy Wood solo single. And again, that's, he was he was kind of playing around with various production techniques that owed a lot to both Phil Spector and Brian Wilson, I think. Obviously, he did the, uh, the single Forever as well, which was kind of like an early 60s kind of love letter almost. So, yeah, he, he was obviously very versatile, um, but uh, he was in his element, I think, in the early 70s. When when you look at all the stuff he was doing, you've got the move hits, you've got Roy Wood solo stuff, you've got Wizard as well. And he must have lived in the studio. Yeah, it's such a contrast to the, you know, since the late 70s, when prior to that, until the mid-70s, he you know, he released so many projects under different names. A, a man of such prodigious talents on on almost any instrument who could emulate any sound a brilliant songwriter but it's just such a shame that we haven't really heard uh, much since no that that's true i think um even genius has a sell-by date and i think he was working at the top of his powers there you can say the same about ray davis in the late 60s mid to late 60s but ray davis kept plugging away and he kept writing Mm. new stuff and and putting out albums that were big in america whereas roy i I don't know he seems to have been happy to take um to not to not to spend his time in the limelight he was supposed to be chronically shy um so maybe that's something to do with it but yeah it, it was like uh, he had a he had a golden period and i think that period probably ended about 74 75 maybe
from Roy Wood and Wizard, we get to ELO and the period when Jeff Lynn really took hold of that mantle after Roy Wood left. The big statement that was roll over Beethoven. I think it is a big statement um, for, for Jeff Lynn and, and ELO because if you look at what they were doing, there were three elements, really. There was the, the classical music fusion. You've got the, um, the Beatles debt as well. And you've got rock and roll with, with people like Chuck Berry. And Roll Over Beethoven is just a literal fusion of all three, all three elements. You know, the Beatles covered Roll Over Beethoven. It, it starts off with the, the, an extract from the Fifth Symphony, uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and, and it's a Chuck Berry song. So um, it was almost like a statement of intent. Uh, we've used the album version, which is about seven minutes long, and you can hear it in all its glory. Uh, is a case of, of you do wonder how how ELO would have progressed had Roy Wood stayed with them. Maybe it's like the old Spark song, the town wasn't big enough for both of them, but uh, <laughs> certainly it became a Jeff Lynne vehicle. As I say, you always wonder how Roy Wood being involved for a bit longer than the year or so he was involved for would have affected what happened to the band. Uh, I always found it interesting that in the late 70s, Jeff Lynne, kind of had success because the ELO were not particularly successful at first mm. uh, but he had success with like um, uh, Mr. Blue Sky and, and uh, Diary of Horace Wimp which were more like the Idol Race 10 years later you know that kind of yes. toy town pop yes. sound uh, which wasn't the direction you would have expected from things like Ma 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 Bell or, or, mm. or Roll mm. Over Beethoven so I, I guess bands have their own dynamic and they um, they progress as they as the leader chooses them to do. But again, yeah, seven minutes long, but um, not a moment wasted, I think, on right over Beethoven. ELO took a, a, an extra year or two to really take off because the, the move wouldn't lay it down and, and there was that period when Jeff Lynn was actually in the move. That's right, yes. Um, that was the last year or so. In fact, um, Jeff Lynn had only agreed to join the move because Roy would have promised him they'd be doing the, the Electric Light Orchestra afterwards, but the move wouldn't die down. They kept having hit records. I mean, those late period move singles like uh, Chinatown and Tonight, Roy would consider to be throwaway, but, uh, you know, most people would have based their career around that stuff. So, yeah, the ELO were kind of delayed for about 18 months. Um, yeah, they they, uh, they had a, a very kind of convoluted genesis, really, uh, and if you think that Roy would have been talking about this in the late 60s, mm. that's a hell of a long while to plan something and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 he subsequently said that he had issues with the management. Uh, but who knows?
So we finish with uh, Judas Priest, Rockerola, and um, not many people um, realise that Judas Priest's origins lay in the late 60s and early 70s, so this is a great way of showcasing a time in the band that, that not many people are aware of. No, that, that's right. This is before... Um... This is before they they became successful. This is their first album for a fairly small label, Gull. And when I was putting it together, it did seem like this was like the coming of the new generation. But in actual fact, they were formed in West Bromwich in the late 60s. And the, the original singer and bassist, the uh, singer Al Atkins and bassist um, Bruno Stavenil, had played in loads of bands together already. The Bittersweet, Sugar Stack, Blue Condition, Jug Blues Band before they put Judas Priest together. But they signed a deal with Andrew Oldham's label, Immediate, which shows how long they were going, because Immediate, Immediate finished at the beginning of 70. So in late 1970, he put together a new, uh, Al Atkins put together a new Judas Priest lineup. They made some local demos, and then Al Atkins decided that um, they weren't making enough money, and he had to support his young family and get a nine-to-five job. So Rob Halford comes in at that point, Rob Halford and Glenn Tipton, and they, uh, they're paired with a Black Sabbath producer, Roger Bain, and they record their debut album, Rock and Roller, uh, which came out September 74, but nobody really noticed. But this is kind of like the culmination of, of that Birmingham, West Brom, Wolverhampton kind of shift from, from 66, 67 psychedelic pop through progressive rock and into early heavy metal. Unfortunately, we couldn't include Black Sabbath on the compilation because they never allow their stuff to be used on compilations. Um, same with uh, Robert Plant's early stuff. We couldn't use any of that. But Judas Priest is kind of a link between the late 60s um, West Midlands scene and the subsequent um, late 70s new wave of British heavy metal, really. Judas Priest, notable for, for one of those groups that actually went on to in a much greater success with literally technically no original members. Yeah, I... Uh... That's the thing about Judas Priest. I always associate them with the late 70s. I think most people do because that's when they started having hits and uh, making a breakthrough. So that was kind of a nice way of saying, well, actually, they were part of that previous generation almost uh, of musicians. So it is a link between the two two things that on the surface, don't, I mean, I, I say I, I'd associate Judas Priest more with bands like Def Leppard. It, it seemed to be a good end to, to a tale of how a music scene in a particular area kind of shifts over eight maybe years eight or nine years something like that and how it kind of almost benefited the local community that they didn't have any sort of major stars in the beat boom just to close and and, and reflecting on uh, this set once upon a time in the west midlands the boston sound of brum rock it really does show so many artists and musicians and so many ideas and there's not many areas of the uk that that could have the volume and diversity and quality of sound like uh, the west midlands really no that's right that that was why we really um had the idea of putting it together because it is a complete local scene um but there's so much kind of um premier league quality there that um you can actually make Four hour, it's a three CD set, so there's four hours of music. And to be honest, we had to leave stuff out. There's just so much. Uh, but I mean, apart from the things we've played today, we've got bands like Chicken Shacker on there. We've got uh, The Uglies, who were a major band locally, really big band, never quite had the success they deserved, but they obviously went on to do other things, uh, Steve Gibbons in particular. Uh, we, we have The Idol Race that we haven't mentioned 
just so many so many bands uh tn symphony who uh, had a couple of very collectible albums bakerloo a local kind of blues band really um there is an embarrassment of riches in that that scene so yeah we uh put it together it's four hours long medicine head also on there and and it is a complete story of of a local community almost uh, the sleeve notes do go into more detail about places that were played locally how bands came together uh, various kind of um, local agencies who looked after the bands. For instance, one one um, one agency sold Slave Amber Slave as they were then to to Chachanda for hundred quid apparently. <laughs> so yeah, it is a fascinating story, and yeah, hopefully people will like it because there's a lot of good quality stuff on there. We tried to go for kind of uh, less obvious um, selections in some cases. I mean, nobody really needs to hear one of uh, Slade's major hits again. So we've gone with that album track, um, On My Hotel. So yeah, hopefully people will find it, will get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of it. It was certainly fun to put together. And absolutely fun to listen. And uh, thank you so much for your time, David. Um, this is such a brilliant concept. I'm sure everyone will enjoy it. Thanks very much, Jason. Thank you. Thanks, then. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.